Okay, well, before I have you turn to a passage, I thought I should mention um, there's no hidden message in my sermon about anything. Just want you to know that I'm not, this is just a sermon. I have been burdened to talk on this text ever since I first heard it preached 15 years ago outside at Freddy's when my father-in-law dealt with this verse. And uh, it's crossed my mind again and again as a Christian. And so leading up, even after 15 years, I will fail to preach it as it is worthy to be preached on. But that's what we're going to look at. And I trust you will find some application for this truth in your life. If you're a Christian, you, you will. But a starting question would be this. Name a time in the Apostle Paul's life where he was afraid. Name a time in Paul's life where he was afraid. And, you know, if the mighty Apostle Paul was afraid, what would be one of the next questions you would ask? You'd say, Paul, why? Why were you afraid? And just we're going to find out, we're going to find out this. One of Paul's daughters, who had been away from his home, was not going to show up on the wedding day, to be presented to her husband as a pure virgin. Paul's daughter, Corinth, the church, who had made a firm commitment to her future husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, she was betrothed, but sadly was presently being convinced to marry another man to give her spiritual virginity away with improper relations. So Paul writes a fatherly letter to her in hopes she will hear him out. So that's what we're going to consider. So turn to 1 Corinthians 4, and the title of my message is, Why is the Father of the Bride Afraid? Why is the Father of the Bride Afraid? 1 Corinthians 4, it's not where the main text is, but there's something important to see here. 1 Corinthians 4.15 For though you have countless guides in Christ, he's speaking to the church, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there Paul uses this language. Him being a spiritual father to this church. So go to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Paul likens himself to a father. This is powerful imagery. Um, especially thinking about earthly fathers and their care for their earthly daughters, how much more uh, we could relate to this imagery that Paul gives us. So 2 Corinthians 10, 14. uh, He says, We're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. Listen to this. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. You see, so Paul creates a category that you can be a spiritual father to people by being the instrument used in their life to lead to their conversion, and Paul feels a responsibility for those individuals, and we're seeing that, and we see that in our, in our text. This is the text, 2 Corinthians 11. Let's read these verses right now. This is Paul, the father, spiritually speaking, writing to them, 
as a father to a daughter. And this is the same letter, Craig even referred to it last Sunday, where he, he says in chapter 10, verse 1, he entreats them with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And so you can just imagine this. He, he is literally doing what Galatians 6, 1 says. In a spirit of gentleness, he's seeking to restore this church. But the imagery is, is a father going to his daughter. 2 Corinthians 11. I, I wish you would bear with me. And a little foolishness. You know, he's going to commend himself. That's kind of, he's getting forced to do that. He doesn't want to do that. It's a little foolish to defend yourself. Do bear with me. Gives a reason. Bear with me. For I, I feel a divine jealousy for you. What's that come out of? Since I betrothed you, to one husband. And what was the end goal of this? We heard about the song, how beautiful. That's talking about this. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Something happening in the future. It's not yet happened. The consummation hasn't happened. Verse 3, but I'm afraid. So there it is. Paul's afraid. Someone says, when did, when did the Apostle Paul ever get afraid? There you have it. Paul is afraid. What made him afraid? What put fear in him? But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, so he's thinking about our minds, our thoughts. It's exactly what happened to Eve in the garden, right? Her thoughts got altered by the devil about who God was. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul is afraid for them that their thoughts, brethren, that's where it, it starts. It's in the mind. Verse 4, for if someone comes, and he gives an idea here of maybe what's on his mind, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, he says, you, you bear with it readily enough. He's saying, bear with me. You're bearing with these people. Bear with me. And then he said, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, <laughs> I'm not so in knowledge and deed. In every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. And he, and he goes on. But we're going we're gonna to stop right there. Let me pray again. Father, Lord, what a, what a passage, Lord, of Scripture. Lord, the mighty Apostle Paul being afraid for the church, Lord, for their minds to be driven from a simple and a pure devotion to Christ. Lord, apply this in our own hearts, Lord, in whatever way we need it. Lord, You know every one of us in our minds. And Lord, what's happened, happening in our own thought life and our thoughts about You and Lord, keep us, Father. I, I pray, keep us, Lord, keep us, keep us purely devoted to You. Lord, we want to be like Paul, determining to know nothing among anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lord, make that all the more real in our lives and in our hearts. Please help. In Jesus' name, Amen. So Paul says as a father, he helped bring them to Christ. 
He betrothed them to one husband. The husband being Christ, they believed the Gospel, and thus they were committed to this one husband, to this coming consummation with the Lord. And in Paul's imagery, the goal is to see his daughter, this church, remain spiritually pure in a period of betrothal up until the wedding day. Which, brethren, that's, we're going to find out. We're all in that right now. Okay, if, if there's been a commitment to Christ and you've been betrothed to Him, we're still on the way to eternity, to this ultimate wedding and consummation with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to remain pure, as it were, in this season in our lives. And we're going to look at what type of purity Paul was thinking about. But based on what Paul is hearing, he's afraid that this is not going to happen. Right? And, you know, what's, what's amazing about this, this is a church where who was the founding individual who God used in their lives? I mean, it was Paul. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you wanted to pick someone to go plant a church and think it'd end up being one of the healthiest churches you could possibly have, who would you pick? I said, let's get Paul over there. I mean, that'd be, that's going to turn out great, right? You know, one of the applications we'll look at at the end in this is not to wrongly find comfort in it, but Paul had churches where people would even be led astray. Even the mighty Apostle Paul had that happen. And so we don't want to be so hard on ourselves at times when we, we see people we've poured into abandon the Lord. Paul had the same thing happen. But here he's making an effort that they not abandon the Lord. He's trying to restore them in a spirit of gentleness by entreating them with the gentleness and meekness of Christ. By entreating them, reminding them that He's like a father to them, spiritually speaking. And He's burdened for them like a father for the daughter, wanting the daughter to remain pure until that wedding day. He feels that burden, that responsibility. And this is the same Paul who in the same letter says that we all are to imitate Him as He imitates Christ. His love for the church at Corinth its nothing but a clear example to us of Christ's love for us. Christ is all the more involved in us for our purity. Just like Paul was involved with them, so is the Lord Jesus with us. We find that in Ephesians 5. And so, just a few brief things before I give some points. Number one, just, just briefly here, what is betrothal? Because he mentions that right there in verse 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. There's a commitment there to one husband. And so the Jews, they had basically two separate ceremonies. Uh, they had a betrothal, and then they had a, a ceremony where there was basically the finality of this commitment. And we see that with Joseph and Mary, right? There was betrothal, but there was no consummation. She was found with child in that period. And it's such a serious thing in that culture where he was considering a certificate of divorce. So it shows you what this really means. This is a real serious commitment. This is not like betrothal in the modern era. Jewish betrothal, as one writer said in the first century, was not something that was entered into lightly, nor was it easily broken. The betrothal could be canceled only by an official bill of divorce. The betrothed couple did not live together until the marriage ceremony when they entered the wedding canopy and the marriage blessings were recited. And then notice they say this about betrothal. The responsibility of safeguarding his daughter's virginity fell to the father. Especially in Jewish cultures. You know, in our day, I mean, so many of us, we just came from all manner of sin in the past. This... this uh, you know, the saint of virginity that the Old Testament puts such a weight on is just, we're in a totally different world. 
right now. The big thing is a clear conscience before God and spiritual purity. That's what you want in a spouse. That's what you're looking for in a spouse, regardless of all the sin that one might have committed in the years when they were lost. Not that it's something you don't want to take into consideration. You do. But Paul feels a divine jealousy. Right? As any father would to preserve the purity of the bride for her husband. He doesn't want his, this church, these believers, who's given a gospel, he doesn't want them to go and have relations with other messages that aren't true. Right? And he sees them kind of veering into that. He is concerned. He's afraid. He speaks up. He says, bear with me. He's knocking on the door. I want to come in and have a conversation with you. With you. He's saying that to the daughter, so to speak. That's, this is powerful imagery. He doesn't feel callous towards his daughter, but he's afraid and caring for her. He's concerned for her. And this is ultimately the imagery we see in Christ, right? Ephesians 5 is Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. And then why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. And listen to this so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The Lord Jesus desires that for you, for me. Paul desired that for the church, for himself. You see, we want to have this mindset. This is a real, tenacious and intense concern for one another. This is Paul loving the church right here. So, when does this wedding happen? I mean, it seems from what Paul's saying here in 2 Corinthians, he's pointing to this happening at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in Revelation 19, you don't need to turn there, but it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen and this is always interesting to think about, is the righteous deeds of the saints. Um, But that speaks of this wedding happening, and what's the bride? The bride is getting what? Prepared. So Christ is seeking to get you prepared. Paul is seeking to get you prepared. Is all of this what Paul's talking about, about imputed righteousness? Is this all about getting Christ's record on your account and end of story? You know, you have legal purity, so to speak, and that's the end of the story. Is that how Paul's viewing all of this? Not, no, not at all. That's not how Paul's viewing this. That's not how the text in Revelation is viewing this. There, there's a fight here in our lives for our thoughts to remain true to the truth of who Christ is and His Gospel. And if people in this church received a different Spirit. They had all these manifestations of the Holy Spirit happening. And here, they receive a different spirit. They receive something that the devil disguised as himself as an angel of light. We read later in this passage, they receive a, a different gospel. They receive another Christ. Some distortion of who the Lord Jesus is. Uh, this, should, this should make us take care and heed over ourselves. And so in Revelation, that text I just read, the imagery is of entering into a more intimate relationship that Christ has initiated and He's bringing you to that point. This is something we all all get to look forward to. right? This momentary life, and then there is this finality with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's glorification, there's consummation. But in Revelation it says, 
it, it said in the text, the bride has made herself ready. The bride's got responsibility. The father, spiritual fathers have responsibility for those they have an influence in in their lives to make sure those people spiritually remain ready. So it highlights this human accountability is highlighted right there. At the same time, it highlights God because it says it was granted to her to clothe. And so you've got man's responsibility, you've got God's sovereignty. Again, throughout the Bible, this is all, it's all there. Revelation 21, it goes on to say, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Paul is jealous for the church that they be prepared by having their thoughts centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth and that they don't commit spiritual adultery. Now, sometimes the Scripture, it speaks about us, sounds like it speaks about us being married already. In Isaiah 54, it says, for your maker is your husband. But in Paul's case here, he's looking at this bride who's been betrothed to one husband and the consummation hasn't happened yet. And he's wanting this person to remain spiritually pure to that point when the Lord Jesus comes back. So Paul views life as just leading up to a final presentation. Oh, if the world, that they go to a big event and they want to make sure they're ready. They're looking in the mirror, seeing, do I look right for this big event? Maybe it's a phys- an actual wedding. Brethren, we should be constantly looking in the mirror of the Word of God, saying, Lord, search my heart. Am I ready? Is there something not right in my heart? Is there something not right in my own conscience? I mean, Paul looks at all of life leading up to this final presentation, this final walking down the aisle of the second coming, and he desires as a spiritual father that his daughter who's in spiritual danger would remain pure before the Lord and make it. I mean, is that a constant theme in the way Paul speaks? You better believe it is. And he, he constantly hits on God's work in it, but man's responsibility. Even in Jude, it says, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present... You blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. There's a presentation. It's going to happen. Right? It's not a school presentation. It's not a presentation with the job at work in order to get a promotion. This is a presentation, the bride being presented to the living Christ when He comes back. What a day that's going to be. And Paul says to the Colossians, he says, He did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the Gospel that you heard. There it is again. People shift from the hope of the Gospel that they heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see that Paul sees. There's a presentation. Don't shift. Make it. Make it to that presentation, trusting in Christ, holy and blameless, above reproach before Him. So we see these ideas in Paul's language here. He wants them to be presented as holy and blameless. He's talking about their conduct, just as we saw in Revelation. He's thinking about their conduct as Christians in most of these passages. And he's thinking about that if you indeed continue not shifting 
I mean, isn't life full of people shifting? They change opinions, they change thoughts, they shift from one doctrine to another. I mean, Paul recognizes that's just a reality. Paul looks at this church that he fathered and he desires to see all of them make it. So, I've got three points. That was kind of the introduction. I've got three points and then application. So the first thing, what is the father's fear for his daughter? What is the father's fear for his daughter? Again, Paul called himself in 1 Corinthians a father to them. That's why I'm using that language. He's using this imagery. I, I trust you see that. And there he says in verse 3, but I am afraid. And then he mentions the fear. He mentions them being deceived. He mentions their thoughts being led astray. He mentions what he doesn't want their thoughts led astray from. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And then to complicate matters, he lets them know, well, what could happen is someone comes proclaiming another Jesus. Meaning they think, they say, well, my thoughts are on Christ. And then Paul's like, wait a minute, it's not the Christ of the Bible. There's other Christ, you see. That makes it complicated here. It's like saying, find the guy named John, but there's multiple guys named John. You've got to figure out which one's the true John in order to have a conversation with the right person here. So what is the father's fear for his daughter? That she might commit spiritual adultery in this season of betrothal. That she wouldn't be presented as a pure virgin, but commit spiritual adultery. And Paul makes it clear. We saw verse 4. Some of the first things on his mind right here are different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And then he thinks about Eve. And so, like with Eve, who he refers to, what was the was issue? What happened to Eve to make her impure? Did she go commit sexual sin? What did she do? Her thoughts altered about her perspective of who? Of God. That's what happened. You see, and that's exactly the main thing on Paul's mind here, because the first thing he says after this is a different spirit, a different gospel, a different Christ. And his main concern is devoted purely to Christ. So the issue wasn't, we're not, when you think about purity here, should you remain sexually pure? Absolutely. But we're thinking really about doctrinal purity here to some degree. Not denying the truth of what God has said. Now, Paul, he doesn't get overly into specifics on what they were teaching, but rather he was concerned more about what was happening to the purity of the Corinthians at this point and turned to just next page, 2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 12. We find Paul saying the same thing again that he was afraid, verse 12. And here we see what he's afraid of them giving in to a different spirit, a different gospel, is going to lead to, right? Because Bad company, as we saw in the first letter, corrupts good morals, right? Bad company with people who deny the resurrection. It affects your purity um, as a Christian. Practically, bad doctrine leads to an immoral lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 12, 20, verse 20. For I fear. There he is again. He's afraid. He has a fear. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I might find you not as I wish, that's just fatherly language, right? You know, the dad, he just wishes his daughter would be acting a certain way. <laughs> I mean, Paul, he's got a desire. And that you may find me not as you wish. 
that perhaps, so that's very gracious. He's, not, he's saying perhaps, this is what, where it could lead to. There may be quarrels, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. You know, being humbled in the ministry, things didn't go as you planned. You thought the church was excelling and then this happens to them. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and they haven't repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, and the sensuality. And amazingly, it says that they have practiced. And so that, there Paul is. He expresses some of this fear. Right? You see there's a doctrinal thing, thoughts led astray from Christ. And then clearly, if you receive a different gospel or a different message, it leads to all of that. It's going to lead to that. All Stuff like that is going to crop up. It's going to happen. Maybe these other gospels, these other messages, these other Christs, they approved of these actions. Or they lead to such actions. And I don't have all the answers there. Paul doesn't we can't totally get inside the church at Corinth right here at this year, at this point when Paul's writing to them to give a specific answer on every one of these things. But these other messages lead you away from Christ into that type of a lifestyle. Uh, there's multiple examples of Paul having fear. First Thessalonians, don't turn there, but verse chapter 3, verse 5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You notice the repeated, repeated thing in Paul's life? He's living life having different fears come upon him of those he labored among going astray and being led in a direction where he feels like his labor would be in vain. Brethren, if that, I mean, when that happens in your life, don't, don't get discouraged over that. Paul had the exact same thing happen. And you don't look at Paul's labor and say, well, he should have done this and he should have done that and he did that wrong. No, rather, there's an adversary since the beginning who's had a lot of opportunities by which to deceive. And if he was that crafty with Eve, no doubt he's still all the more crafty to this day. Um, and he says the same thing to those at Thessalonians, Thessalonica. He says, for now if we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. If. If you're not shifting... If you're standing fast, that's how Paul is speaking as a father to his daughter. And brethren, you know what this made me think? We're all someone's daughter in some way. I mean, maybe, you know, we're all someone's daughter in that God used someone in our life as an instrument to bring us to Christ. And maybe you don't even remember who that was. Maybe it was some sermon on the internet, and that person has no idea they birthed, they were involved in birthing you. Uh, into the world by God taking the word they were preaching and changing your heart. And you might have spiritual children and be a father to someone, like Paul is talking about here. Look at Paul's jealousy for these individuals. That's something we want to imitate. We want to have the exact same thing. Because all of us are in a season of trial and of testing. And, you know, as, as he said to those at Thessalonians, it, when he wanted to learn about their faith. When someone sends a letter to learn about your faith, what do they find? Right? If they send a letter to learn about your faith, what do they find? Do they find a pure and simple devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that what they find? Is that what they find in your life? 
Or do they find someone like King Isaiah, Ahaz, who we saw last week, in the midst of his distress, you found a man not trusting God, even though God has given him signs, he grew more and more faithless to the Lord. I hope that's not what they find. You know what you and I might have happened? We might have old lovers in the spiritual realm come back again to seek to pull our hearts and affections towards them. What are you going to do? You're going to commit spiritual adultery? You're going to give your heart away to that idol, to that thing, to that immorality? You're going to indulge in that when those old lovers come back? So this is the father's fear. He's afraid his daughter doesn't remain spiritually faithful to Christ. And he's afraid the enemy, the devil, will subtly deceive her in her thoughts to compromise from the truth. I mean, imagine as a father, let's just, your daughter, let's say she is married, right? She already is married to a husband. And you start seeing your daughter, your earthly daughter, get attracted to another man even though she's already married, how would you feel as a father to see your daughter get led in that type of direction? I mean, that's what Paul is feeling here. He sees the daughter shooting emotional signals towards a heretic. And as a father, he's terrified because he sees the thoughts aren't on this Christ. There was this betrothal, this commitment to this Christ. And now this Christ is being altered in her mind, and she's being led in this direction, and there might not be this presentation, this consummation to come at the second coming. She might not make it. And Paul's afraid for them, spiritually speaking. Turn, just turn again. I know Jeff referred to it, but Genesis 3, keep, keep, keep a marker in 2 Corinthians 11. We'll be right back there. But it'd be good to look at, look at Genesis 3. I mean, Paul refers here to Eve... We're thinking about the father's fear. Well, one thing the father was afraid of, which um, 2 Corinthians 11.14, no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Remember that. We've got a devil who disguises himself. In Genesis 3, it starts similar language. Verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Crafty. Cunning. He said to the woman, so he's he's speaking to her. He's going after her. And first thing he does, did God actually say? He's he's questioning, as Jeff pointed out in the first hour, the very Word of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. God's not going to put you in hell. No loving God would have a hell. Verse 5, for God knows when you eat of it, it will make your eyes open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So he changes her whole perspective. Verse 6, so when the woman saw, her perspective is altered by the interaction with the devil. Her thoughts have shifted When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, it was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and they ate. 
You see, that's, that's, that's exactly what Paul... Paul is worried about this sort of interaction happening and this issue happening. And the devil, one thing we saw right here is the devil misrepresents the Lord. The devil misrepresents the Lord. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what the Lord said? Don't eat of any tree in the garden? No, so Satan, Satan's already wanting to see how much knowledge she's got and put her on her defense. Right, to see how she responds. And so he makes an overstatement. The Lord just mentioned the one, and the devil says, well, did God really say not eat of any tree? And so he's seeing how much does she know, and she gives a corrective response. And Satan disregards her response as not being true. He says, you surely will not die. And so the devil right there, in her thoughts, it's led astray from the truth. He gets her to disbelieve what was true, to believe what was actually false and a lie. And you, got, you know how it is. There's feelings that enter your heart as you're hearing these different statements from the devil right there. And maybe there's some unholy feeling and thought that you have towards the Lord. And you don't turn from it. You indulge in it. You think a certain thing about the Lord that's not true. You see, that's what Paul's afraid of. The thoughts being led astray from that devotion to Christ, from the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what He has taught. Um, yeah, the devil, he wants you to think God's holding back. God knows that when you eat, right? Satan, Satan, oh, he's so good, right? At getting you to think God's holding back on you. Right, God's holding back. Look at the Lord, how He treated you. He held that thing from you. You can go get it on your own. You can go get it on your own. That's what the devil says. So the devil is subtle. He's not obvious. He disguises himself even as an angel of light. He might come in the form of a false Christ. The devil, what did the devil do with Christ and Christ temptations? What book did the devil refer to in order to try to deceive the Lord? He referred to the Bible. Right? He quoted verses from Deuteronomy with the Lord. And Paul even says earlier in 2 Corinthians, he says, we need to not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so brethren, in all of life, there is a devil prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, trying to get you to not really believe God, trying to get you to believe a misrepresentation of God, trying to get you to think that God is holding out on you in order for you to be upset with the Lord. Right? Just like this whole church here is turned against their spiritual father, Paul, and they feel like Paul has wronged them. And that something's wrong with Paul. That's not the case. Paul's right here. He's trying to help them. He's saying, bear with me. Give me some time here. That's Paul's attitude. That's his heart. And so the same word, this word craftiness, is found in multiple places, but one is Ephesians 4. He says, don't be, no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So that's the devil. He's crafty. He wants to pull you away based on doctrine and thoughts of the Lord and misrepresentations of the Lord. And so that's, that's, Paul's first, that's the first point. Paul is afraid for his daughter that her thoughts would shift from a hope in Christ and the truth of who Christ is and be led astray in another direction. So back to 2 Corinthians 11. <coughs> Second point. So look at the father's love for his daughter. 
And we see this in multiple ways. Look at the first thing he says here. Bear with me in a little foolishness. The father is willing to act foolishly to try to win his daughter back. Right? He's willing to do something he usually wouldn't do. Commend himself. And he starts commending himself, verse 21. To my shame, I must say we're too weak for that. And then he goes on. But but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, and he says again, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare not... Dare, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. I mean, he's giving all these credentials. He even says, I'm, you know, I'm talking like a madman. But Paul was willing to do that which could be wrongly judged by people as being proud. He was willing to do that out of love to try to win the church at Corinth back. And you know how there's certain times we wrongly judge people's motivations? Well, what would you have thought of Paul when he starts bringing out this repertoire of all these different things? You could have easily thought, oh, look, he's proud and defensive. What if, that's a risky thing for him to do right there, but it's out of love that he does that. So we see the father's love for his daughter Corinth in this way. And he says, bear with me. I mean, he's basically apologizing. Bear with me. Give me some time here. You, can, you see the gentleness in this of Paul. And how he handles all of this. Uh, and this is just after he said in you know, you know, chapter 10, verse 18, he just said, For it is not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He just said that, and now he's commending himself. And he says, You see the, the tension. He's not afraid to get in a tense situation to talk through it with the church at Corinth and have them bear with it in order to try to keep their minds centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? That's the heart of the Apostle Paul right here. And we want to have the same attitude in our own lives towards others. Um, so he loves his daughter by being willing to act foolishly. To try to win her. He loves his daughter by being willing, by desiring for her to bear with him. He's really making an opportunity. He wants her to put up with him, to listen to him. Sadly, it seems like the daughter has grown up to have an inability to listen to her father to some extent. That's the fear. And then we see the father's love and his jealousy for his daughter. Verse 2 Bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. What, isn't jealousy a bad thing? No. There's, there, Phinehas was commended to the Lord because of what? His jealousy for the Lord. Commended him to God. He was the first one to take the spear and do something. Right? That's, this, is, this is a good thing to have this type of jealousy. When a person feels jealousy, yeah, they're impatient with any rival or partner who's getting in the way of the one they love. Right? Well, that's how Paul feels. There's this false teacher getting in the way of his daughter, Corinth, and Paul is getting jealous. And what type of jealousy was it? Divine. What's that mean? It's God's jealousy. Paul is attributing the very character of God to what he is expressing and feeling in his heart towards those at Corinth. This isn't some petty possessiveness that Paul's having happening. This isn't some envy that damages a human relationship. This is something that is an act of love that actually should show the human relationship how much you care for them and they see the very love of God in you because of that jealousy. This is like God's covenantal type of care and love for His people. And Paul's saying, that's what I feel. This is how important this is. That you not go away from Christ. 
in your thoughts. So Paul had jealousy of God over them. You know what? That is incredibly loving. I mean, how many people, you don't, you know, you don't say to them, well, I feel a divine jealousy for you. You say, I feel perpetually frustrated with them. Right? Or impatient with them. Paul here has such a jealousy of the heart of God for them. Uh, that, that to me is something that really shows the apostles' love right here. And brethren, I mean, I, I want more of that. Not just for those, maybe the Lord used me as an instrument in their life to lead them to Christ, but I want that for, for all of you. I want to have a greater jealousy to see you all presented as a pure virgin to Christ at the second coming of Christ on that great day. To see your thoughts remain on Christ all the way to that point. To not shift from the hope. Well, a third point here. The father's desire for his daughter's mind. What he wants her to think about to be devoted to Christ. And we see this multiple times in the letter. We'll look at, obviously, verse 3. But look at chapter 10, verse 5. Uh, often a misunderstood verse, but Paul is speaking about how the apostles ministered among those at Corinthians. I taught on this years ago. And notice what he says when he's defending how they're going about. This is how they are seeking to deal with those at Corinth. And he says in verse 4, "...the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds." Verse 5, We destroy, we, the apostles, we're destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we're seeking to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You see, speaking to them when your obedience is complete. So Paul, Paul's already views his ministering among a church is seeking to destroy thoughts that are raised against the knowledge of God and then take the thoughts of the person to be held captive to Christ. Right? And so then you got 2 Corinthians 11, 3. I'm afraid for you as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul right here in this section even is bringing out those weapons and he's seeking to destroy these thoughts that are not according to Christ and to give them truth. I mean, Paul looked at that. Paul realized this is a battle of the mind. It's a battle of what people are thinking and what their perceptions are. And their perceptions can change in one moment from one statement from the devil... And it alters their thinking to an incorrect way of viewing the Lord. This is the danger. And Paul's worried about the Corinthians and how they think about Christ and is their knowledge according to Christ. And he says here, the literal, it's, it's the simplicity that is in Christ. That's what it says right there. Be led astray from the simplicity that is in Christ. From a sincere and a pure devotion. Simplicity. You know, verse that always makes me think about Matthew 11. He says, I've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding in the world, and I've revealed them to babes. These things in context seem to be talking about certain gospel promises. Simple. What did Paul say to start of 1 Corinthians? The message is simple. I mean, look, Christianity at times can feel incredibly complicated. Don't get me wrong. There's times it, 
living as a Christian feels really complicated. And certain things in the Christian life and certain decisions and all of that. But you know what? When it comes to Christ, is it complicated? Is what Christ has done in His life and His death, His work, His person? No, that's not complicated. There is simplicity there. There's a simplicity there in our devotion. He doesn't mean simple like you've got to be dumb. That type of thing. Not at all. The doctrine is simple, easily understood. It's not a complicated mixture. When you think about the imputed righteousness of Christ, you think about His promises, you think about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants you singly devoted to Christ as a person and devoted to His truths. Paul wants your aim in life to be imitating Christ, seeking to please Christ. Paul, again, is the one who said, I determined nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul wants you to say every day, I want to be like Christ. And yes, I realize that whole bracelet got you know abused and used back in the, the 90s, but it's right to have a bracelet saying, what would Jesus do? That is absolutely a valid question in the Christian life. We're under the law of Christ. And under His law and His person and looking to His example, that absolutely is a massive consideration in our lives. You know, it, tell me, is Philippians 2, 3 complicated? Listen to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of Christ, others. Have this mind among yourselves which is in Christ. Is that a complicated text? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Have humility. Look out for the interest of others. That's hard to live. It's easy to understand. It's easy to read. It's hard to live. So in one way, yeah, I don't. the Christian life, the Gospel, these fishermen come along preaching this Gospel of a crucified Messiah who was buried and raised from the dead. That's a simple message. It's not complicated. There's a lot of teachings, though. They want to drive you away from Christ. Colossians 2, 8 mentions things that are not according to Christ. But you know what you see with Paul? Paul's the one calling them to this. just reminds me of what he said to the Philippians. He said, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, who's going to be honored? Christ will be honored in my life, whether by life or by death. For what reason? For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. You see, Paul was so focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Even reading 1 Corinthians 9 last night, just amazed at Christ's desire, Paul's desire for Christ to be honored. It's just, it floors and rebukes me to do a greater job of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ in this one life that I've got. Um, one commentator, he says, now nothing can be more simple than this. Christ is all then it would be equal folly to seek for happiness in any other thing but in Christ. And Christ is in all. Then it would be equally folly to seek for happiness in anything but in Christ. So that if our minds are led away to seek a supply from anything short of Christ, this is the same temptation the devil played off of on our first parent. And he succeeded. Right? He got Eve to go away from the Lord. This is indeed is the grand device of Satan. It is the masterpiece of his subtlety. This is what all carnal, unawakened men fall into. They fancy something that is left for us to do to qualify ourselves to be made partakers of grace and to improve the talent which is given to us or to seek the satisfaction and peace in this life from something other than Christ. And so that's Paul's desire for his daughter. 
for Corinth, for the church, is that their thoughts will not be led astray from a simple, pure devotion to Christ. So obviously that's where he wants their thoughts at. He wants their thoughts on Christ, His person, His work. Yes, thinking about Jesus existed as deity. Yes, thinking about Jesus created everything universally. Think about all those glorious realities and those statements of who Jesus Christ is and His death sacrificially and His coming again powerfully that's going to happen one day and is forgiving sinners mercifully that happens in this life right now paul wants us thinking about that paul wants us going and seeing others embrace this christ so we see in paul picture of christ right i mean he's, paul's like christ and he's saying to imitate him as he imitates christ i mean it's not complicated you and i should be like christ that's what we're trying to do it's not just for husbands to love their wives as christ love the church every christian is called to be like christ So Paul is giving himself as a spiritual father to these believers that they might be presented to Christ as pure virgins. And what incredible love that we find from Paul. Uh, Sam, Sam Storms, he said about this passage, the enemy, through a variety of means, lies to us. He wants you to believe that the pleasure he promises is more fulfilling than what may be found in a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. So we got Eve with, right? Eve, you got the short end of the stick. You know, if you eat of this, the Lord knows it's going to happen. Oh, wow, really? Once she was convinced of that, she ate. Right? He wants you to believe the pleasure He promises is more fulfilling than what may be found in a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. He rarely threatens or intimidates. His strategy is to allure and seduce on the strength of what sin can bring you now. If He can deceive you into believing that the way of Christ is hard, that there's no reward, that it's demanding, that there's no delight, that the painful sacrifices are required with no satisfaction either now or in the age to come, if the devil convinces you of that, he's won. And that's why how I respond and how you respond in a trial, that we not be like King Ahaz, it really matters. Because when trials come, it tests your love. It tests your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if we find in 2 Corinthians 11, the Christian life, it's a simple, pure devotion to Christ. Obviously, he's thinking about doctrine and the knowledge and, and who he is because he mentions a different gospel. It matters you understand justification, regeneration, the resurrection. It matters that you understand Christ being our great God and Savior. It matters that we understand these truths of who the Lord is, that we believe in a virgin birth. Um, So Christ is at work through Paul to see this brought about in our lives. But ultimately our trust, yes, is in the Lord that in Ephesians 5, He's going to keep sanctifying us and helping us. All right, some application here. These are just applications that came to mind from this passage. I, I, I guess, yeah, question number one, are you the bride of Christ? Have you been betrothed to Him? Has there been a commitment made to Christ? And yes, I realize He's seeking out a bride. So you could say, has He hunted you down? Has He found you? Are you the bride of Christ? If not, why not? Why not come to Christ? Why not be devoted to Christ? Thomas Boston, he said, he said there's, the next, there's next the dowry promise to the bride. And that is all things with Him. 
That is, He didn't spare His own Son, delivered Him up for us all. How will He not freely give us all things? Even all the blessings of the everlasting covenant, grace and glory, no good thing withheld. He says a large maintenance, a good house. You know, John 14. You know, women, if your husbands, they can't afford a house for you right now in this life, don't worry. John 14 says your heavenly husband, he's going to have a, a mansion if you want to use the, what the KJV, but he's going to have a room for you there for all of an eternity. Rent paid in full by his blood. I mean, look at the, look at the, if you're the bride of Christ, brethren, look at what we have. Look at his divine love for us. Look at the hope that we have. There's no reason in this life to, to grumble, to complain like the Israelites do in the midst of all the blessings that we have. I mean, what, what poverty, misery, suffering, it's all, when we come to be consummated to Him, it's all going to feel like absolutely nothing. It's just going to be so insignificant compared to that day. And we've got to remember that in the present. The moment you don't believe that, the moment you question God and what He's allowed into your life, the moment you think like that one quote that your life is just too hard and God doesn't care for you, the moment you give into those thoughts, you're going to be led astray from a pure devotion to Him. Be devoted. Devoted to Christ. Second, question of application he says the bride will be purified right he's seeking to be a pure virgin so stuff has to happen in our lives to maintain purity all the way to the end so do you view what causes you pain in your life as an obstacle to be removed or as an opportunity to be purified and to come more like christ and to be refined more don't mistake the hand of god and say it's the hand of the devil. If God, God, you just go to Job and that whole logic is gone. Who allowed the devil into Job's life? God did. And Job said, as I come through all this, I will come out like gold. Was the devil involved? Yes, by God's bidding. God had a purpose even there. A third thing. So first, yeah, are you the bride of Christ? I mean, you go on and on about the privileges. Even someone this morning was saying Ephesians 1 and all those promises. I mean, we could be here for five hours looking at all that we have as the Christian. And you should do that. Look in your Word. See that. See what the Lord has and His promise for you. Secondly, the bride's going to be purified. I mean, view what's happening in your life as the Lord doing that. I mean, just like in John 15, you know, you're getting pruned and you look at the tree and all the branches that look like they were bearing great fruit, they all just got cut down. Well, why did that happen? That it might bear more fruit. A third thing. Are you bearing with people who seek to speak truth into your life? Right? You see that in Paul. He says, bear with me. He says, you put up with them readily. Bear. Put up with me. Listen to me. I mean, do we have a good listening ear to those who come to us with concerns? Are we able to listen to them? The Lord is going to use you bearing with people to help you become more and more a pure virgin for Christ. Right? That's what Paul's trying to do right here. If they shut Paul down, does that affect their purity? You better believe it does. So same thing with us. We need to bear with people as they seek to bear with us. Are you giving them a chance? A fourth application, a thought. Are you wrongly bearing with those who are speaking error into your life? Right? You see that here. He mentions you put up with them readily. Uh, there's, there's, there's people we can put up with 
who are speaking air into our life, and we lose trust in the godly men due to, who, due to what? The heirs of others. That can happen. So we should ask ourselves, are we leading anyone astray? And I had here Proverbs 10. I don't know if this memorized, but this, recently this verse has really uh, struck me. Proverbs 10. I, I just read it. 10, 17. Listen to this. This is very... So green. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. You say, well, I know that. But look at the next. He who rejects reproof, you know what leads to the refusal to take and heed the oil of rebuke, of valid rebuke in our life? He who rejects reproof leads others astray. That's terrifying. Someone rebukes me, I don't heed it. It's not just what happens to me. Guess what? I'm now a vehicle to lead others astray. That, to me, has been very sobering to think about in the last few months. So next time someone rebukes you, don't just think about yourself. Think about if you don't heed that instruction and it's valid, you could then lead others astray. A fifth thing here in application. Can you say you have a divine jealousy for other believers that they make it? Paul could write this. I feel. I didn't study the whole feel word much as far as the original meaning and every. But I feel a divine jealousy. Do I feel that? That's being like the Lord. Or is there something missing here in my jealousy and concern for others and what happens in their life in regards to doctrinal and practical purity that they make it to the end? Am I callous? Do I lack this concern that they'd be presented as a pure virgin to Christ? You know, you know what Paul said in Philippians 1.8? He said he had the affection of Christ for the Philippians. So Paul's saying he has the jealousy of God and he's saying he has the love of Christ. Those are incredibly strong statements that Paul's able to make. I mean, part, part of me says, Lord, work that in my heart where I could say that and it's, it's really true. There's something being worked in my heart of a divine jealousy for those in the church and an affection of Christ for those in the church that they remain pure spiritually, not committing spiritual adultery, making it all the way into that final consummation. And you know when the time you get to rest from having that divine jealousy is when it's all over. When we all get to heaven. A sixth thing. Are you seeking to betroth others to Christ? I mean, that's what you're doing when you go downtown. You're trying to convince those people walking by on that street that there is a lover for their souls who wants to take them as his own. Oh, I hope they see how compelling that is. A whole lot more compelling than a, than a prostitute or someone trying to appeal to them for some momentary pleasure in this life. Are we being used as instruments in others' conversion? And not just that, discipling them and laying the truth down, answering their questions. You know, it's being a fishers of men, and we don't just get the fish on the boat and that's it. But no, we're seeking to invest in them, as many of you are, investing into one another. For you're seeking to betroth others to Christ. Because I tell you, a lot of other people are trying to get people to commit their hearts to false gods all over the internet. So we need to be fighting for people to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. An eighth thing, or seventh thing, do you recognize the Bible's teaching on the necessity of enduring to the end? 
mean, everything here Paul says implies that. He's afraid. Look, if these people, there's no doubt about it, they're just going to make it to the end, would Paul, would Paul have been afraid? He wouldn't have been afraid for them. Yeah, it's all said and done. You know, everyone, they're all going to make it. Paul viewed the Christian life as a relentless battle to walk with a clear conscience, to not make a compromise, to not be in love with the world like Demas who abandoned him, or to not abandon the faith, the doctrine, and the teaching of the Lord and a good conscience and make shipwreck of the faith, 1 Timothy 1. I mean, Paul looked at this. We're in a war. Brethren, we're in a war, and we need to recognize that Jesus taught those who endure to the end will be saved. We've got to endure. An eighth thing. Are you a pure virgin or in any way shifting from the hope of Christ? And I would say this to you. If you're shifting from the hope that's in Christ, you might not even see it. Uh, Because that appears like what's happened to those of Corinthians. They don't see it. They obviously think they have something better. Right? The false apostles gave them something better. And same thing. The devil gave Eve something better. It's subtle. It's crafty. The devil is cunning. And so we need to be warned of that. Can I look and say there's any, any doctrine about who Christ is? And I brought this up even last Sunday. I've seen people start to deny creation that God created and believe in a theistic evolution and they start to change what Genesis says and they start to question that brother and that's scary where are they going to end up you start to slide in one area you start to deny some real clear solid truth of who Christ is that is dangerous ground and so remain pure in your doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ I'd also ask under this, yeah, is your conscience clear? Paul said he always took pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. And when you think about shifting from Christ and a hope in Christ, does anything come to your mind? Uh, What is the present status of your thought life? Is your thought life much about Christ or is it about feelings on other matters? Remember what the end of 1 John, what's the last verse in 1 John? I think it's the last verse. Little children, and what's he say? And what idols he's talking about in the context. Misrepresentations of who Christ is. That's what the whole letter deals with. He's not talking about idolizing a car. That's not his point at all. His point is little children. There he's talking about as a father to his kids. Not as a father to a virgin daughter, but he's talking to his father, his, as a father to the kids. Well, not Paul, but John. And he's, he's saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And he's just dealt with these misrepresentations of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. That's that's the danger. That's a real danger here. So are you a pure virgin? In that that sense where there's this heart there, it doesn't mean that the Christian has no sin, but there's this devotion to Christ and who He is. Peter could rise up from his sin and denying Christ and keep on with Christ. Are you keeping on with Christ? A ninth thing. Are you looking forward to the wedding day? Uh, if you're single, right now in this life, don't be cast down. You know why you shouldn't be cast down? Because there's many people who are married who are going to be cast into hell in the life to come. They're going to be cast away from the presence of the Lord. 
You have no reason in this life, in your singleness, to be cast down. Because one day you will have a spiritual embrace as a pure virgin to the Lord Jesus Christ. You will have His presence and His love that is inexpressible and full of glory. You'll have that for all of an eternity. And you'll look back in a trillion years and a trillion eternities from now, and whatever present suffering you had, Paul, as Paul said, it's a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that waits for us that is beyond all comparison. We can't even compare. You get the greatest comparison possible what heaven is like, about what seeing the face of the Lord Jesus Christ is like. You can't even make a comparison that's going to stand. Paul says it's beyond comparison. Number 10. Have you experienced someone you poured into? It seemed like they were real and they received a different gospel and abandoned the faith. And I mentioned this earlier, but just, just think of the mighty Apostle Paul. He had the same thing starting to happen here and in multiple churches. It was no fault of his. He made an effort. He appealed. He said, bear with. We don't know fully what happened to everyone at Corinth. But I would just say this. Are you afraid for anyone that they're being led away from a simple and a pure devotion to Jesus Christ well, like Paul, are you going to them? Eleventh uh, thing. There's just two more. You know, I think I can speak for all of us elders and say, we have and want more of a divine jealousy for you all. I mean, just to, to look at that, even though I might not have been the instrument in most of you's conversion, we are instruments in your life right now trying to pour the Word of God and the truth into you. And I want to more and more have a growing divine jealousy like Paul has here to fight for you all to remain as pure spiritual virgins, not adulterating and giving your heart to another lover, another idol, another Christ, another Gospel, a different spirit, the devil disguised as an angel of light. I don't want to see you have one thought. Get away from the truth of who God is and from His Word. But pray for us to have more of that. And then I guess the last thing I had here was, if you're lost, if you don't know this Christ, I'd plead with you. What are you waiting for? Why, why don't, he says, he, there's a feast prepared. He says, come, everything is prepared. He said on the cross, it's finished. He says in the parable, everything is ready. And the Spirit and the Bride say at the end of Revelation, come and drink the water of life. It's without price. I mean, the dowry is, you know, what you're going to inherit is absolutely remarkable. You know, if, the, if a single billionaire put online, he's wanting to find a wife, and, and, you know, all the women think of all these riches, and they're signing up to see, well, is he going to marry me? Is he going to marry me? You've got the king of all the universe who sent his only son to die for a people and shed his blood and loved them. And if you want to see his love, go read Ezekiel chapter 16. It's absolutely astonishing the divine love of God for his people. And he is saying, come, everything is ready. I'll receive you. No questions asked. There's not going to be anything in your life that I'll look at and say, well, I can't have you as my bride because of this. Christ will take you into his bosom. He will pardon you of all of your sin. Thomas Boston, he said, the soul being overcome, it gives its consent to take Christ for a husband. It renounces all others. That's why people don't come. They, they got someone else they're wanting in their life. Some idol, something that's keeping them from Christ. It's no mystery. Christ is willing. And He's altogether lovely. Well, that's all I have, brethren. Uh,
apply this in your own life. Um, don't let your thoughts be led astray from a simple and pure devotion to Christ. Remember that verse. Remember how central who Christ is and your relationship with Him is to everything you do in your life. You're called to imitate Christ. You're called to preach Christ. You're called to pray to Christ. You're called to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're called to determine to know nothing among anything except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's worthy. He wants your attention. He wants your affection. So keep your thoughts on Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, maybe there are Lord, some here that I, I could have a fear for and be afraid, and I, I'm not afraid because, Lord, I just don't know everything in their life. Lord, You know there's, Lord, there's people that slowly drift from the meetings and we put our head up and look for them and it's been a month. Lord, I pray for whoever those people might be who are out there struggling. And Lord, maybe they've got the devil whispering into their ear some lie about who you are. Lord, they're trying to, the devil's trying to take their affection from you. Lord, I pray you'd hunt them down. Pray you'd discipline them. Lord, that they might not deny you, but they might be presented to you on that final day. Lord, a pure virgin. Lord, we thank you for coming to love us. Father, what have you done? Lord, it is a miracle that we can be the bride of Christ. Lord, as we sing this union, maybe the song shouldn't be called how beautiful, but Lord, how absolutely incredible this is even possible that it happened. Something like that. Father, it's just astounding. Lord, that I'm here in one day. Lord, as You keep me and as You use people in this church to help keep my thoughts on You, devoted to You, to You, the true You, Lord, just to think one day there really is consummation. There really is this season of betrothal that ends. Lord, there's a wedding feast. And Lord, we, the church, the Christian, we're the bride. Lord, this is incredible. I feel so pathetic, Lord, in, in showing even the glory of that. Lord, no, no song can express it. Lord, because it is. It is beyond comparison what awaits for us. And so, Lord, help us to remember these things. Lord, help those with different trials and struggles to remember these things. Lord, that they wouldn't lose heart. Lord, that they would not abandon You. That they would not abandon, as we heard in the first hour, Your Word. Lord, Your Word is truth. Please sanctify us. Lord, make us like Christ. Lord, work in us to will and to work for Your good pleasure. Lord, we lack wisdom in so many different areas. And, and You said if we lack it, we can go to You and You're going to give wisdom. And so, Lord, You're not holding back from us. Lord, help us to rightly hear Your voice from Your Word. Lord, help us to remain faithful to You. Lord, no doubt if we depart from faithfulness to You, it will lead to that in our own marriages with our wives. Lord, we won't remain faithful to them. Lord, faithfulness to You Lord, affects every area of our life for good. In a good way, Lord, it, it affects it. And Father, I do pray lastly, Lord, those here who, they, Lord, they... They don't have a great day of a wedding coming up in eternity. Lord, they have the words, I never knew You. They have the words, bind them hand and foot and throw them into the outer darkness. And Lord, we read in, in Matthew of ten virgins who were all standing at the door. Lord, 
They thought they were ready and they weren't. They didn't have oil in the lamp. Lord, they, they came back and they knocked. They couldn't enter. Lord, I want to see everyone here enter. I want to see everyone have oil in the lamp. I want to see everyone trusting in Christ. Lord, I want to see all these saints walking with a clear conscience. Lord, I want to see all these saints, Lord, living out what, Lord, what Craig declared last week on gentleness. Lord, help us. Father, no, Lord, You give us sermons even on gentleness, Lord. And then, yes, You give us opportunities to live all of that out in our life, Lord. You're, you know Your purpose, Lord. Every, everything in our lives right now, it's not without a purpose, Lord. There are purposes there. And it might not be clear now, but Lord, You're working all of this for Your glory. And I thank You. Lord, I praise You. You are good. And You've been good to us. Lord, You were good to us yesterday. Lord, You're still on the throne. You're ruling. You're reigning. And I thank You for that. I thank You, Lord, for being so faithful to us. And Lord, be with us. Be with us the rest of this day. Lord, be with my time with the men later. Lord, we just look for strength in our inner man, Lord, that we would remain faithful to You at all costs. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.